Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for joining The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. It's been 20 years since the Balkans were ripped apart in a series of wars following the breakup of Yugoslavia. While the deadliest fighting on European soil since World War II didn't spark a wider war, as did the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand by a Serbian nationalist on a visit to Sarajevo in 1914, the Balkans are hardly a pillar of peace. Joining the crisis next door to talk about a potentially destabilizing move in the Balkans is Heather Conley, Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia and the Arctic, and Director of the Europe Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Heather, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. It's great to be with you. Excluding some skirmishes in Macedonia, Kosovo saw the last major fighting following Bosnia and Croatia as the Serbs cracked down on Albanians seeking an independent Kosovo, eventually leading to NATO's bombing campaign against Serbia that put an end to that fight. Now we fast forward 19 years, and there's a proposed land swap between Serbia and Kosovo. Uh, what exactly would this entail, and why would they do it? Well, uh, it's a great question, and any time you talk about the Western Balkans, you have to unpack uh, quite a bit of history. Um, but let me start back b before I sort of fast forward to this concept of perhaps uh, swapping land uh, in Kosovo, giving some uh, parts of northern Kosovo to Serbia and perhaps uh, having uh, southern parts also being reconfigured. Let's start back a decade ago. In 2008, Kosovo um, unilaterally declared independence, and it, it, it did that um, with the full backing of the U.S. and a large component of the international community. And 10 years uh, later, uh, we still find that there are a, a huge amount of countries, over 111 countries that recognize Kosovo's independence um, from uh, Serbia, but uh, there are very important countries that don't. Russia does not recognize Kosovo's uh, uh, independence, uh, neither does China, and five European Union countries. So what, what both countries have been trying to do is seek recognition. First, Kosovo wants to be recognized at the United Nations and have, and most importantly, have Serbia recognize it. And what Serbia wants is to eventually join the European Union. But in order for Serbia to join the European Union, it must uh, recognize Kosovo. So the two leaders of Serbia and Kosovo have been in a dialogue for the last several years that has been facilitated by the European Union to try to get to a place where they're normalizing their relationship, there's recognition of each other, and then they're working on the issues to help solve problems, whether that's the border issues and a whole lot of economic uh, issues as well. That, that, those conversations have become stuck over the last couple of years, and in August of this year, both leaders put forward this very bold idea of having some sort of a land swap. Um, and it 
sort of struck everyone by surprise because for the last 20 years, U.S. policy and and the European Union's policy is to make sure that we don't uh, redefine borders, that we have agreed on the borders. We want uh, communities, whether they're, as you said, Albanian communities or Serbian communities, um, we want them living uh, uh, together uh, in harmony and making sure that those ethnic groups are working together uh, rather than uh, being uh, partitioned or separated. And so when this idea came up, it was surprising that both the U.S. government and the European Union were, were pretty okay with this. They said, well, if you two leaders are going to figure this out, that's perfectly fine. Um, if it's okay with you, you know, it's okay with us. And so that was sort of the first surprise. That's a pretty big difference. Um, the two leaders also encountered quite a bit of backlash in their own countries uh, for that concept. And for now, publicly... This, this idea has been dropped, uh, but privately it is continuing and people are, are both exploring whether this could in fact unlock um, because for Serbia to recognize Kosovo, it is believed uh, the leaders in Serbia need something to sort of be uh, given to in order to do that. And, they, and some folks think this is the right way to go. I happen to believe it is something that could unleash a lot of instability in the Western Balkans at a time when things are fragile uh, in Bosnia, Herzegovina, very fragile, and where we have some good news in Macedonia trying to get a new name uh, through a constitutional process. We don't want anything to destabilize that potentially very good news story. Before we look at how this could cause instability throughout the Balkans and perhaps beyond the region, what exactly would the land swap entail? Is this something that would be neatly done along the borders, or would it be a bit more complex than that? Well, a bit more complex. Um, it, so it's it's basically looking at some portions of land in uh, northern Kosovo and southern Kosovo in the Presovo Valley. And in some ways, it's it's certainly not um, crystal clear as far as this means that all of the Serbian population that is in Kosovo, which is about 5%, would all neatly fit into this land swap area, actually far from it. In fact, some of the major, um, very historically significant uh, sites for um, the, the ethnic Serbian population uh, would be outside of even this land swap. But it, as I said, I think it's entailed to be a bit symbolic um, to give something uh, to um, Belgrade, to the Serbian government, to get them over this very difficult uh, position they find themselves in not being able to recognize Kosovo, and if they don't recognize Kosovo, they cannot continue to proceed on to their hope for path uh, to the European Union. So it, it is a small, uh, these two areas in the north and the south, it would provide a little clarity uh, of the ethnic populations, but it certainly wouldn't um, partition them in any way. How have relations been in Kosovo between ethnic Serbs and Albanians since the end of that war two decades ago? Well, 
I mean, we've come an incredibly long way from the most dark and difficult days, uh, but it's still incomplete, and I don't think anyone is pleased with the progress that has been made in trying to help these two communities heal, get back to greater economic prosperity and and security. Um, nationalism on both sides uh, continues to rage very unhelpfully. Um, and so this is this is really the trick. The work here is never done, although the issues fall far from the um, headlines, and you have very few both experts and and policy focus on this region. But it is very uh, fragile. Um, even early gains that have been made can be easily reversed, and that's why even putting this idea forth has rekindled nationalistic passions on both sides which is very unhelpful to the to the larger process of normalization. This could be precedent setting in the Balkans. Do you think that this would have a direct effect on Bosnia which also has a Serb minority and and there have been issues there for for two decades since that war ended? Well, and you just hit the nail on the head. This is really the concern even if you could sort of surgically or hermetically seal what would occur between Serbia and Kosovo in exchanging territory, this is our concern, that this just opens up. So if, if it's okay in, uh, in Kosovo to do this, why would it not be perfectly fine in Serbia where we, uh, sorry, sorry, in Bosnia, where we have uh, an ethnic Serb population focused in Republika Srpska, who, uh, Mirla Dodik, who is the uh, leader of Republika Srpska, but has now just been um, elected as the um, president uh, presidency of the tripartite presidency in Bosnia, which is um, for a Serb, um, a Bosniak, a Bosnian Muslim, and uh, Bosnian Croatian uh, identity. He's going to use this and say, "Well, I would like uh, the, my ter- the, the Republic of Serbia to be an independent territory." This could start then creating momentum where ethnic Albanian communities uh, in Macedonia or elsewhere could start thinking about creating new land swaps that would create an ethnic Albania or a greater Albania um, dimension in the Western Balkans. And so, again, eroding 20 years of trying to have these communities think less about their ethnicity and more about their prosperity and security as a nation working together this rolls everything back. So that is our concern, that there just can't be an isolated case of this. It just opens the Western Balkans Pandora's box, of which uh, has been opened and reopened over the last century, and violence is usually the product of it. Are there any fears that this could lead to further irredentism across Europe? I mean, you've, you've got minorities living in different countries, close to borders of others, and we've seen Europe's borders change many times over the centuries. Is this something that could lead down that possible path? Well, I think this is exactly why there are, in some cases, uh, several European Union countries that haven't even recognized Kosovo's independence, particularly Spain, that is right now grappling with the challenges of of Catalonia and those, some in Catalonia, that would like uh, to see a path towards independence. That prevents uh, even the, the recognition. So you're absolutely right. We have 
uh, Scotland and its uh, recent independence referendum. So there are movements in in Europe that want to have uh, their uh, an identity based on their their ethnic culture, their history, their language. And so you're absolutely right. There are certainly these these forces within Europe. I think, though, as we're talking about whether it's you know resolving Serbia and Kosovo's challenges. Uh, trying to work through uh, a process for Bosnia. Um, they're sort of been stuck in the Dayton uh, Accord for the last 20 years. They they need to get out of that. They need to move on and prosper. Again, we're we're so encouraged by the positive things that are happening uh, in uh, the Republic of Macedonia. Perhaps getting this name changed, getting them onto their path of Western integration. But this is also fragile. And we can't take it for granted. We have to pay attention to it and support those communities and those societies that want to live and work together. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. We're talking with Heather Conley with the Center for Strategic and International Studies about a potential land swap between Serbia and Kosovo. Heather, in your article for the Center for Strategic and International Studies, you write that Serbian President Aleksandar Vucic and Kosovo President Hashim Thaci have run into strong domestic opposition to the partition. Are their groups powerful enough to resist the nationalists in each country who are in favor of that swap? Yeah, and again, you've touched on really the missing piece where there are equal forces in civil society, um, groups that want to, to, you know, be able to focus less on their ethnic identity and more on making sure their children are well-educated, have great infrastructure, economic opportunities, that rather than leaving Kosovo for other parts of Europe to find the future, that their future is best in an integrated uh, uh, Kosovo. And so we we just don't have that other uh, center of gravity that has a better and alternative answer to nationalism, to land swap, to irredentism. That's what we need to, I think, concentrate on building up from the bottom up while we're continuing to work with these leaders We want them to normalize their relationship. We want them to move on from where they are. We want Serbia to join the European Union, but it's not about giving one another land uh, to make that possible. It's about trying to ensure the vision of uh, an integrated and prosperous Western Balkans. The U.S., EU, and NATO have invested heavily in protecting and, and rebuilding Kosovo, and have been firm in the past against partition in the Balkans. Why are they sitting back while this potentially happens? So that's that's sort of my mystery. I, I think it's uh, in part, uh, this has been stuck for quite a while. And they, the, I think European and U.S. policymakers uh, don't have sort of anything else and uh, another idea to sort of unstick this process. So maybe this is the thing that will work. Um, again, I think it speaks to our own lack of, uh, of policy imagination. We don't have any other ideas right now to put forward to try to get both of these countries moving in the right direction. 
The EU doesn't have additional ideas. I don't think the U.S. does either. So really, this falls, and where I put the think tank community on notice, we need to start thinking of some some new and more creative ideas that don't uh, have to redraw borders or move populations around to restart a process that we, we look for that uh, more imaginative solution uh, that can keep both the, what we've been working on for 20-plus years of integrating the Western Balkans into NATO, into EU, keep on that path. But we just need new policy tools to do it because the ones we've been using they really haven't been uh, effective in getting this process sort of over the finish line. So we have more, much more work to do in that space. But boy, the, the land swap idea, I believe, is not the right direction that we should go. Could this be in part fatigue, at least on the part of Europe, having had to deal with the Balkans now for coming up on 30 years since the, the breakup of Yugoslavia and just, you know, just running out of, of initiative and steam and trying to find a solution to this? Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there's, there's just, on one hand, there's just uh, enlargement fatigue by the European Union. Um, when they had their very significant um, enlargement in 2004, there were a series of tools that worked. It was a great success, and it's getting harder. The countries that are coming into the, or seeking to come to the, in, into the European Union have a more challenging set of problems, institutions, conflict is there. So it's harder. And I think it's clear since 2010, Europe has been so, the EU has been so consumed first by um, the financial crisis, the Eurozone crisis, uh, that was quickly uh, replaced by events um, in Ukraine and in the security challenge from Russia, followed by the migration crisis in 2015, followed by Brexit, Brexit in 2016. You know, they just had these series of issues which have forced them to, to concentrate on, on, on very troubling internal dynamics, there's not the energy, there's not the capacity to really focus on, uh, you know, a very uh, destabilizing uh, neighborhood. Uh, so there, there's certainly been a lack there. And I think, too, that the U.S. has certainly been um, uh, not focused on this at the most senior levels of, of the U.S. government. I think the view was this is for Europe to resolve. We'll do what we can. Um, so I think we've been a bit inattentive. And now um, because U.S. policy is uh, certainly not in a place where it's seeing how it can work with Europe, it's, it's having a much strained relationship with our European allies on a whole range of issues. It just, it's, it's harder and harder to find a common approach to the Western Balkans. Heather, you touched on Russia. Moscow has long been a major player in the Balkans as an ally to the Serbs. What's its role in this latest chapter? Well, I, 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 you cannot say that Russia is playing a, a helpful role here. It's uh, certainly strengthening its uh, traditional relationships in the region, strengthening its relationship with, with Serbia, particularly both militarily and economically. Um, uh, Russian uh, influence tends to go where there are existing societal divisions. And, of course, in the Western Balkans, there's so many to choose from. Um, we know uh, Russia has been very involved in trying to uh, ensure that Montenegro, NATO's newest uh, member, 
um, very disruptive before an important uh, referendum uh, for Montenegro to join NATO. We know that there's been influence in the run-up to the Macedonia uh, referendum, both in Greece and Macedonia, to try to make sure that Macedonia doesn't isn't able to change its name and therefore join NATO. Uh, so they're certainly not playing a helpful role. They're stoking um, the, the Serbian nationalism and to create divisions um, just to make sure that the Western Balkans don't uh, achieve their aspiration, which is joining either the European uh, Union or NATO. So uh, a, a spoiler role for sure. They, Russia needs to be part of the, the solution to this, but they certainly do not want the Western Balkans to get closer to the West. They want to make sure that their interests and their patronage networks are are fully protected. Russia looking for more instability, just like what we're seeing in Ukraine after four years of fighting with no end in sight. Sure, I mean again, it's I think the the Russia's policies are to ensure that these countries cannot join the EU and NATO, do not want to join the EU and NATO, and they do that by making them as unattractive to the West as possible. When you're in conflict, you're not attractive uh, to NATO or to the European Union. Uh, And they also want to convince those populations that the West is corrupt, decadent, um, and they want to make sure public opinion couldn't turn that way either. So it's a very... You know, it's a very powerful uh, approach and tools, but we have to have ideas that are more powerful, more aspirational, more inspirational, and keep these populations focused on their own reform process so one day they can join these important institutions. Balkans, always a place of interest. When things start to happen, the, the rest of Europe and the world has to take notice of that, as we've seen in the past. Heather, thank you very much for joining us on The Crisis Next Door today. Much appreciated. Thank you. You've been listening to The Crisis Next Door, and we've been talking with Heather Conley, Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic, and Director of the Europe Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.